the audible of the best in Bitcoin. This is the Crypto Economy. Alright, today we are covering the last that we have yet to cover in the Unchained Capital Gradually Then Suddenly series by Parker Lewis. Um, his most recent one was Bitcoin Obsoletes All Other Money, but this one is the one just prior to that one. Uh, Bitcoin is not for criminals. And we are going to jump right into it. So again, this is on Unchained Capital, written by Parker Lewis. Titled, Bitcoin is not for criminals. If you have ever heard or happen to believe that Bitcoin is primarily a tool used by criminals, stop and take a quick sample of your friends and family that you suspect may own Bitcoin. Then ask yourself, how many are known criminals? There have in fact been widely publicized cases in which criminals have used Bitcoin. And because skeptics cannot otherwise explain why anyone else would use it, use for illicit purposes becomes the default assumption. It is generally founded on a view that Bitcoin is inferior to the dollar, either because of the belief that it is too volatile or too slow, or because it's not widely accepted for day-to-day transactions. With a flawed mental framework, the logical explanation then becomes that, from a practical perspective, someone would only use Bitcoin for the purpose of facilitating some illicit activity, generally as a means to evade law enforcement. Your favorite senator or treasury secretary may occasionally make the claim, but thankfully, Bitcoin is not for criminals. It is, however, for everyone. Quote, The clear ends of Bitcoin for either transacting in illegal goods and services or speculative gambling make me weary of its use, end quote. Letters to Regulators from Senator Joe Manchin, February 2014. If Bitcoin were principally used for illicit purposes, it may more logically follow that Bitcoin is primarily used by criminals. Because it is not, the typical follow-on arguments that Bitcoin should be banned in order to prevent such activity similarly do not hold water. The very foundation of the idea is based on the false premise that Bitcoin is inferior to the dollar, when in fact, it is superior to any form of money that has previously existed, principally as a function of its fixed supply. See, Bitcoin is not backed by nothing, or Bitcoin is not a pyramid scheme. Bitcoin's fixed supply comes from the basis of the fundamental demand for Bitcoin, whether it be related to criminal activity or otherwise. And regardless of how many point-of-sale transactions Bitcoin may facilitate daily, it is used every day as a censorship-resistant and inflation-resistant form of savings. Without doubt, Bitcoin is definitely used by the likes of drug dealers and nefarious characters on the dark web. However, it would be irrational to believe that it is its primary use, or to believe Bitcoin should be banned because of it. It is logically inconsistent to form a view that Bitcoin is sufficiently functional to be viable as a currency for criminals, while at the same time deny the implication that such a view would merely establish that Bitcoin is functional for everyone. Flowchart. Is Bitcoin functional? Yes, 
Bitcoin is functional for everyone, including criminals. No, Bitcoin is not functional for criminals or anyone else. But before turning the drugs narrative completely upside down, let's all first admit that criminals rely upon any number of commonly trafficked access points and not just Bitcoin. Roads, the internet, the postal service, airports, the banking system, etc. Yep, all used by criminals and often used to facilitate crimes. But then again, criminals also use all of the above not to commit crimes as well. And that is where the logic that Bitcoin must be banned because it enables criminal activity completely breaks down. Crimes are crimes. There is nothing inherent about the tools used to facilitate crimes that makes them criminal in themselves. Using the mail to send a letter to mom is not a crime, but using the mail to send drugs is mail fraud. Similarly, using the dollar to purchase flowers for mom? Perfectly fine. But buying narcotics with dollars or Bitcoin? That's a crime. Despite criminal use, no one is calling for the ban of roads, the internet, mail, etc. And you definitely do not see any prominent defenders of the public interest calling for a ban of the dollar, which just happens to be the preferred funding currency of criminals everywhere. Sure, fear of criminal activity has been used to infringe on the rights of law-abiding citizens seemingly everywhere. But believing Bitcoin should be banned because drug dealers use it would be no different than calling for a ban on the dollar for the same reason. Missing the point. Such a view becomes that much more untenable once it is understood that Bitcoin is not actually for criminals. But in order to understand that, it must also be understood that Bitcoin is for criminals. It's a paradox. The very idea is turned on its head when viewed through the proper lens. The fact that criminals can use and have used Bitcoin to facilitate commerce merely demonstrates that Bitcoin can be used to facilitate any form of commerce. That a very early and well-publicized use case for Bitcoin involved the Silk Road website, which facilitated transactions involving drugs and other illicit goods using Bitcoin as a means of payment, changes nothing about the broader implication that Bitcoin worked. But rather than focus here, Bitcoin research often attempts to prove the counterfactual, that only a small percentage of Bitcoin transactions are used for illicit purposes. For example, a headline from last year, quote, a new study finds less than 1% of Bitcoin transactions to exchanges are illicit. Coin Center, January 2018. The substance may be true, but these counter-narratives fight the battle along the wrong lines. If the Silk Road demonstrated anything, it was simply that individuals would accept Bitcoin as a form of payment in return for goods and services. It does not matter that the goods sold on the Silk Road website were generally illicit. The Silk Road, which is estimated to have facilitated in excess of a million transactions, was one of the earliest demonstrations of a mass real-world use case for Bitcoin. So yes, Bitcoin is and was used for drug deals, but it is merely one use case that has helped prove Bitcoin's general utility. Nothing more. And when it comes to buying drugs, the dollar remains far preferred to Bitcoin among drug dealers, 
despite them all generally being aware of Bitcoin and capable of accepting it. Whether it be in response to the Silk Road or otherwise, anyone that comes away with the narrow conclusion that, quote, Bitcoin works for drugs, is failing to see the forest through the trees. The more consequential and assumption-shattering implication is simply that Bitcoin works. Period. If Bitcoin could work for drug dealers to facilitate commerce, could it not work to facilitate any other form of commerce? It does not require much imagination to carry forward the logic. If person A would accept Bitcoin for good B, is it possible that any person might be willing to accept Bitcoin for any good, regardless of who or what? In the case of the Silk Road, Drug dealers may not have fully understood why Bitcoin worked, but it worked sufficiently well that they were willing to trade drugs for it. What they seemingly understood was that there was sufficient market demand for Bitcoin to make it viable as a medium of exchange. And because it provided an electronic mechanism to facilitate transactions, it opened up a market and market mechanism that may have otherwise been unavailable. Love it or hate it, it was just a market taking advantage of a new technology. Despite the existence of Bitcoin, drug dealers have not magically stopped accepting dollars as their preferred funding currency. Nor have they stopped laundering dollars back into the banking system. Drug dealers on the Silk Road did not use Bitcoin merely to evade law enforcement, nor did the dollar drug trade simply disappear. They used Bitcoin because it was functional and because it satisfied a market need. If Bitcoin were not functional, and if it were not expected to hold a certain threshold of value over a particular time horizon, it would not have been used as a medium of exchange on the Silk Road. Drug dealers are not in the money-losing business, after all. But more importantly... Anytime anyone decries that Bitcoin is used by criminals for illicit purposes, whether it be a U.S. senator or treasury secretary, the default question to ask should be, why does Bitcoin work as a medium to facilitate commerce in the first place? The litmus test. Focusing on criminals distracts from the more fundamental question and consequence. If Bitcoin could work for a criminal, it could work for anyone, and in order for Bitcoin to be viable as a currency, it has to work for everyone, including criminals. However, this is not a promotion of criminal activity using Bitcoin as a funding mechanism. It is merely a recognition of the properties that allow Bitcoin to function in the first place. Think of criminal activity as a litmus test. If Bitcoin does not work for drug dealers, it doesn't work for anyone. But if it works for drug dealers, it can work for everyone. If it were possible to censor or prevent Bitcoin transactions related to certain activity or certain individuals, it would be possible to censor any activity and any individuals. And if there were a prime target of activities or individuals to censor, it would be that of a criminal enterprise. The attempts have already begun. Quote, the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, has sanctioned three Chinese nationals and their cryptocurrency addresses, alleging they violated money laundering and drug smuggling laws. 
The agency also listed a number of Bitcoin addresses that the agency claims belong to the Chinese citizens. End quote. Coindesk, August 2019. Recognize that in this context, Bitcoin, quote, working is specifically a reference to the network protocol layer. Whether a company or individual is willing to accept Bitcoin from an address sanctioned by OFAC, or whether a third-party financial institution freezes an account associated with such an address, is of little consequence to the long-term viability of Bitcoin. What is consequential is whether the network would validate a transaction originated from a sanctioned address, or validate a block that includes such a transaction. Stated another way, whether Bitcoin miners or nodes would reject such a transaction despite it otherwise being valid based on the network's consensus rules. Bitcoin is only viable as a currency because it is decentralized. But decentralization is not an end in itself. The end game is censorship resistance, and it is not an end game to protect criminals. It is an end game to protect the very root level functioning of the currency system. Censorship resistance is all or nothing. Censorship resistance is the network's most critical property because it ensures that the rules of the network will neither change arbitrarily or be enforced inconsistently without which the system would be inoperable. Most important of these rules is the finite scarcity of the currency itself. Censorship resistance reinforces scarcity, and scarcity reinforces censorship resistance. Bitcoin becomes more resistant to censorship as it scales because the network becomes more decentralized over time. As adoption increases, each individual, on average, controls an ever-diminishing share of the network's fixed supply, and it is the scarcity of the currency which primarily drives adoption. As the network becomes further decentralized, it becomes increasingly difficult for any individual or business to censor the network. However, at any point in time, whether Bitcoin is sufficiently censorship-resistant is ultimately unknown and practically unknowable. Instead, Censorship resistance can only be measured through the test of time and through each failed attempt to censor the network. From a practical perspective, the risk of censorship principally comes in two forms, forcing changes to the network's consensus rules or invalidating or preventing otherwise valid transactions. By design, anyone can access the Bitcoin network on a permissionless basis by running a Bitcoin full node. Each node can broadcast transactions to the rest of the network, and every node validates a full history of the blockchain with each passing block based on a common set of rules. Through this operation, nodes distributed throughout the world are able to come to a common consensus regarding the valid state of Bitcoin ownership across the network on a decentralized basis and without anyone trusting any other participant. The consensus rules of Bitcoin are the common language that coordinate all peers within the network, but no single party dictates the rules. Everyone opts in voluntarily. If it were possible for any single party or central authority to force a change onto the network, 
or to influence activity within the network in such a way that would invalidate an otherwise valid transaction, it would demonstrate that the network was not sufficiently decentralized to prevent censorship. But what about the criminals and what does this have to do with that? If it were possible to censor criminal-related activity within the network, either by inhibiting access to the network or by preventing otherwise valid transactions from being confirmed, it would demonstrate that the network is not sufficiently decentralized to ensure censorship resistance. The Bitcoin network has no understanding of criminality or who defines it. It is amoral and apolitical. All Bitcoin understands when validating transactions is its consensus rules. It is a closed-loop system. A Bitcoin transaction is valid if it is consistent with the network's consensus rules. If it were not, all bets would be off. If criminal activity could be censored, it simply would prove that any activity could be censored. But that is not where it ends. If any activity within the network could be censored, the network as a whole would be censorable. By demonstrating that a single transaction could be prevented or censored, it would establish that the network's consensus rules would also be at risk. Bitcoin can't be a little bit censorship resistant, just like you can't be a little bit pregnant. Censorship resistance is an all-or-nothing proposition. It either is or it is not. And if it is not, then everything is at risk, including Bitcoin's fixed 21 million supply. That number and the reliability of its scarcity underpins every other economic incentive that allows the Bitcoin network to function and accumulate value, including the mechanism by which the network comes to consensus. Accepting that the Bitcoin network will always to some extent be used for illicit purposes is not some libertarian bent. Instead, it is a recognition that in order for Bitcoin to be functional and viable as a currency system, it has to be so for everyone. If anyone could prevent anyone else from utilizing the network, whether an individual, an organization, or a nation-state, Bitcoin would be at risk of failure. Censorship within Bitcoin at the protocol layer is not the equivalent of PayPal deplatforming an individual or a company nor is it the equivalent of Bank of America shutting down a checking account or Visa not authorizing a transaction. Bitcoin is a currency issuer and settlement layer. Any effective form of censorship would undermine the system as a whole, which is why the activity most susceptible to censorship forms a litmus test for the rest of the network. If it were not possible to censor the most at-risk activity, it reinforces that Bitcoin reliably works in all cases. Bitcoin is for everyone. Ultimately, Bitcoin represents a technological advancement in the global competition for money. It is the superior successor to existing fiat monetary systems, even if not well or widely understood today. And as an extension of an idea discussed in Bitcoin cannot be banned, anyone who calls for a ban on Bitcoin due to the belief that it enables criminal activity is concurrently admitting that Bitcoin is functional as a currency. 
Consequently, if Bitcoin is functional in facilitating commerce associated with illicit activities and despite the best efforts of a powerful regulatory authority, ipso facto, it can be functional in facilitating any other form of commerce as well, including by law-abiding citizens. Practically operating within that reality and recognizing that Bitcoin is a finitely scarce resource, it does not logically follow that it will be confined to the dark web, nor is it today. The competition for Bitcoin is global. Over time, those that produce the most relative value will accumulate the greatest share of Bitcoin. To think that those involved in illicit activities will account for a larger share of the future Bitcoin economy than today's dollar economy is not rational, and calling for a ban on Bitcoin is somewhat like being scared of your own shadow. Not only would it not be practical to enforce, but the activity such a policy would seek to prevent is enabled today in far greater proportions by the dollar. It would be analogous to throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We accept the good with the bad, recognizing that due to the very nature of Bitcoin, we do not get to decide. There are always trade-offs, and in this case, that Bitcoin will unavoidably be used for illicit purposes is the trade-off we gladly accept in exchange for the economic stability that an unmanipulable global currency will provide. As with every technology, value will accrue to those that utilize Bitcoin in its highest and best use, a function which only the market can determine. The net benefit will not be zero-sum, and just as the internet is not for drug dealers and terrorists, Bitcoin is not for criminals. It is for everyone. Quote, It is more important that innocence be protected than it is that guilt be punished, for guilt and crimes are so frequent in this world that they cannot all be punished. But if innocence itself is brought to the bar and condemned, perhaps to die, then the citizen will say, whether I do good or whether I do evil is immaterial, for innocence itself is no protection. And if such an idea as that were to take hold in the mind of the citizen, that would be the end of security whatsoever. End quote. John Adams. Quote, Govern wisely and as little as possible. End quote. Sam Houston. Final thought, stealing a page from Marty Bent's playbook. History will look back far more favorably on Ross Ulbricht, the alleged founder of the Silk Road, than central bankers everywhere. Not for the drugs, but for the Bitcoin. Views presented are expressly my own and not those of Unchained Capital or my colleagues. Thanks to Phil Geiger and Will Cole for reviewing and for providing valuable feedback. All right, let's go ahead and hit our sponsor, and I want to talk a little bit about this before we close out today's episode. Another awesome read from Parker Lewis and uh, the one of the many amazing installments of the Gradually Then Suddenly series here. Um, and uh, some, of, uh, some of these pieces uh, getting into this series, I kind of felt were going to be redundant or I was unsure of exactly the argument that uh, Parker was going to take. And he always kind of surprises me with some of the points that he makes that I find are incredibly potent. 
And uh, the one that really just stands out in this one is that this is a decentralized system. The fact that it works aside from any single party's concern and that the consensus rules are what make it sustainable is the only reason we know it functions. It's, it is absolutely inherent to whether or not this thing could ever be a currency or a money. Inherent to the very nature that it is accessible by anyone, that it is trustless, that it actually has rules. Again, it's a digital, something I've stressed over and over and over again. I try to get through people's heads. This is a digital system. It is digital. Like when I have the whole client on my computer, I am running the entirety of the Bitcoin system. I'm not running the Bitcoin network. I am one node in the network. But the entire system of validation, consensus, and everything is on my computer. And I can edit any of it. All of it is arbitrary aside from the fact that we have to reach consensus, that there is a global language of consensus rules that establishes whether or not I'm talking with everyone else. It is truly, as a technology, it is, it is a form of codification of cooperation. How do you ensure, uh, beyond any doubt, the fact that two people have cooperated? How do you create a game where the rules can't be manipulated, where there is no ambiguity whatsoever in what the parties are allowed or not allowed to do? It takes an incredibly abstract and difficult thing and codifies it. It, it quantifies it. And that is in an unbelievably powerful technology. That is what makes Bitcoin so radical. On the surface, it just looks like anything. It's just internet points, right? It just looks like any other app that's maybe a little bit slower, or a little bit more confusing. But underneath, it could not be a more radical departure from what we currently have. But I just loved the, the focus on the underlying principle. And, and Parker has been incredibly well. It, Unchained Capital in general, actually, that blog, everything written up there has been incredibly good at getting to the heart of the principles um, and framing the argument. The framing of the argument is so critical. One of the uh, points that he actually brings up that I love uh, is... Um, the, the quote, the, a new study finds that less than 1% of the Bitcoin transactions to exchanges are illicit, which is a coin center report and like, uh, like article and uh, stuff that they released. Um, and Parker says, quote, the substance may be true, but these counter narratives fight the battle along the wrong lines. If the Silk Road demonstrated anything, it was simply that individuals would accept Bitcoin as a form of payment in return for goods and services, end quote. And I think framing the argument is so critical is to not let them position the argument. Like, like the, the whole study finds less than 1% are illicit is to accept their premise and, tend to ar and then to argue on their grounds. You're going to their whole mental framing and adopting their reality as the important one to be in consideration of, rather than standing firm on what your mental framing is, is that who gives a shit? <laughs> like, like, this is inherent to why we know Bitcoin works. This is, this is important 
about whether or not it can withstand the litmus test of actually being decentralized. Does it actually solve the problem of trust? And then it takes the argument where it's supposed to be, is that, okay, so you're saying that it's a good thing that we have millions of innocent people for nonviolent drug possession, possession locked away in prisons? Like, are you arguing for this? Are you saying that the trillions spent on the drug war have been a net positive to us? Make them defend that. Put them on the defensive and make them have to explain why destroying millions of people's lives over stupid, arbitrary reasons is a good thing. Make them look like the assholes that they are for supporting what they do. Don't accept their framing and try to excuse the, like, don't, don't be like, okay, it's all good that we have come to this place, that we've had a 30-year drug war that's absolutely obliterated the impoverished class, um, been so skewed toward putting uh, black and minority people in prisons behind bars for shit that happens everywhere all the time for victimless crimes, for, for putting something in your body that they don't agree with. My body, my choice. Where the hell, where the hell is that? But anyway, the, I'm just <laughs> trying to get at the point that like, I think accepting their framing for what the underlying problem is or for what the assumption of a good outcome is, is, is exactly how you lose. That's how you lose the argument. If our concern is how many Bitcoin transactions are illicit or for quote-unquote criminal purposes as opposed to legitimate purposes, well then our entire argument, our entire framing, our entire legitimacy is based on what they think a crime is. So they get to decide whether or not we win or lose our own argument. It's like saying that you're arguing, you can argue whether or not someone win or won or lost a game based on rules that they get to decide on a whim. It's like we spend all our time arguing that, no, we definitely got, like, look at the footage. We definitely got a touchdown. Absolutely 100%. We threw it. We followed all the rules. We had the first down, et cetera, et cetera. We got those six points. That puts us in the lead by two points. And then they get to go, well, uh, we're going to change the rules now, and a uh, touchdown is only worth three points, and therefore you lose. What good's my argument? What's good all that energy that I wasted? You know, Bitcoin's about not wasting energy, right? Bitcoin's about being ultra-efficient about every single ounce of energy we have. Don't, don't argue with people on their framing. Sit back and ask, what is wrong with their framing? Go back and say, what, what's the presumption every single time that you were asked a question or um, uh, given a debate or something like that? It's so, like, the, the fundamental thing that I always try to do and that I think has gotten me better at argumentation over the years. I think it's the key thing that has made me not an idiot in most circumstances like that, is what is the presumption? I mean, the presumption of a digital currency facilitating illicit activity is inherent to it, the, the money laundering. God, the money laundering is the argument that is so bad. Um, like, the presumption there is so insane. Money laundering isn't a crime. Like, what is money laundering actually? When you, when you break down to what it means to quote-unquote launder money, the, the idea that there is any victim involved here is ridiculous. When in reality, the crime, quote-unquote, of money laundering is not explaining exactly where you got your money. That's what it is. It is not telling uh, the government 
exactly where every dollar that you got came from. It's specifically to obtain privacy from the government. That's a crazy precedent to set. And again, you don't even have to have committed a crime. And it's not even, and what's funny is money laundering is often uh, used to pay taxes on it. Like, that's why they let the drug cartels, like, like they know. Um, in fact, like you see, every president have, has, has had dinner, dinner meetings and sat down and have laughing conversations with drug cartels all the time. They do it. The CIA has supported drug cartels. We know this. There's, there's leaks on top of leaks on top of leaks that the uh, CIA and the United States government has been running drugs for ages. What they do is they kill, they hit the little man. They hit uh, minority communities. They hit impoverished communities. They hit all of the little people, but the big ones bring in money and they launder money for them. The banks launder, laundered billions. HSBC alone laundered billions and billions of dollars for drug cartels. And you want to know why the governments didn't stop it? Because when they launder the money is when they get paid taxes for all the drugs. And those taxes are incredibly high because the drugs, the, the prices of drugs are, in, are held high. They, they support, the drugs get more and more expensive because of the illegality. Prohibition is what causes the prices of drugs and illicit goods to be so high and to maintain such a high profit margin. Profit margins on shit like that is like 80%. A normal market par- profit margin is out of control if it's like above five. That sort of a thing is only sustainable through, um, through violence. That's it. Now, Parker takes the kind of more nuanced approach to this. Um, uh, that's just kind of like my perspective on it. But he, was, he explicitly says, you know, this is not some libertarian bent. This is about whether or not Bitcoin works. Mine is definitely argumentation from a libertarian bent. I disagree fundamentally with, with what they call a crime. There's a very, very, very small subset of things that happen digitally, alone, by yourself, in the world, that could be classified as a crime. But the simple, undeniable fact that Parker Lewis gets back to is if this is an independent money, if this is gold, if this is, if this is digital gold, there is no way for this system to work if its consensus rules are not proven resilient to manipulation. And therein lies the need for censorship resistance, because censorship resistance is the end goal, is the end litmus test for whether or not you have any of that independence in the rules. Bitcoin is arbitrary. Bitcoin is completely non-existent, has no supply limits, has no rules, if the rules themselves are not what govern the network. And to say that a criminal could be stopped because of some subjective valuation of jurisdiction A that competes with jurisdiction B, if it, if it is not independent, that Bitcoin works on the consensus rules regardless of both of those jurisdictions, and that the protocol continues to operate without subjective valuations, then it doesn't work at all. If it's... If it's dependent upon someone else's, some single parties, or even multiple parties, subjective desires as to what is good or bad, instead of its consensus rules, then it's nothing new. It's nothing different. We didn't change anything. We didn't invent anything. 
It doesn't work. Bitcoin must be for everyone for it to work at all. There's also another really good quote that uh, I highlighted um, uh, Parker's talking about how that the, like, if an individual or a company, you know, doesn't accept um, Bitcoin from an address that's been sanctioned or blacklisted by their jurisdiction or someone they want to please, or if there is, you know, some third-party financial institution freezing accounts associated with, you know, Wasabi Wallet, um, uh, Coin Joins, or something like that, or an associate, uh, an address address associated with the dark web or something like that none of that has any bearing on bitcoin and that is exactly what those jurisdictions will and can do and a lot of people think that again it's the assumption um from the bitcoin cannot be banned article again parker lewis does a great job of hitting the presumptions of the argument is that why would bitcoin need to be banned if it didn't work um, and the same cases here is that why would Bitcoin work for criminals if, again, as you say, it doesn't work? Um, and that uh, because, you know, because it facilitates illegal activity or because a criminal can use it just like the Internet, just like the dollar and anything and everything, that this means Bitcoin won't or can't succeed? That position is funny to me because it could not be more opposite from the truth, from the reality, is that the fact that Bitcoin works for illicit purposes, the fact that you have to go to a third-party institution to freeze an account or to um, uh, censor anybody's transactions or that you need to have a government ban it and try to delegitimize it in order to prevent its use and that you have no other option, you have to go external to the system not only is that no suggestion whatsoever that Bitcoin can't work or that Bitcoin is in at threat of anything, it's exactly the opposite. It is proof that Bitcoin does work and could continue to work in the face of all of those things because those are the only avenues available to stop it. Again, it's a presumption. It's the it's the initial, the only way to get to that point in the argument is to suggest that Bitcoin works independently of those systems. So if they can have any influence whatsoever over the consensus, if they can have any sort of network level effect, then we've got a problem. But if they can censor their service, sure, of course they can. It's a centralized service. If they can uh, censor... Uh, their jurisdiction and attack people just like they do with drugs? Well, of course they can. That's the jurisdiction. That's the nature of a monopoly on violence. They do it all the time. That doesn't mean nobody's going to do any drugs. That doesn't mean they're going to stop the drug trade. It certainly doesn't mean they're going to stop Bitcoin. Bitcoin inherently doesn't care. Honey Badger don't care. It's in every jurisdiction in the world. It's a piece of software. Easily and quickly deployed all over the globe. There's another, uh, another quote um, that from a practical perspective, the, the idea of censorship um, principally comes in two forms. This is uh, Parker Lewis, obviously, is from the article. Um, that 
we have to worry about two different things, forcing changes to the network's consensus rules or invalidating or preventing otherwise valid transactions. If some sort of central party can do that at the network level, that is a problem. That means that Bitcoin is not working and that the solution to the problem is not robust. It is not, we didn't, we didn't fix it. We didn't solve the Byzantine general's problem, essentially. But again, they're in, there's so many times it comes back to the block size debate. It's amazing how much is relevant and how far extending the consequences of that, uh, that perspective is in Bitcoin is that if they were able to force the network consensus to change, if they were able to push Segwit2x on us, leave aside the fact that Segwit2x can't, didn't ever produce a block, that it just utterly failed, just crash and burn, out the gate, halted the network. Just leave out the utter disgusting disaster that the actual so- software was, that the client was. If they could have forced a change on the consensus rules, no matter how arbitrary, when, when the network itself did not want to, then the whole gig would have been up. That's why so many people will tell you, so many Bitcoin OGs agree, I, I hear this over and over again, is that No2x, the No2x client, and installing that on your nodes, and it's, it's installing that on my node for me, and basically holding up the middle finger and going, take 90% of the hash power with you. We don't care. You are the ones that will burn through money, and we will sit and wait until you realize that you are producing nothing of value, that, that an uh, a intolerant minority could defend the network, was the most bullish event in the history of Bitcoin for me. And I know there are a lot of people who agree with that. I got to say, it was, it was epic to have been a part of all of that unfolding. Um, but uh, that's probably all I wanted to say about this article. Uh, another really, really great one. We are caught up officially. I have read Parker Lewis has finally stopped writing faster than I can read all of these. So we are caught up. We've got the whole Gradually Then Suddenly series. And I don't know if it's ended or not. I don't know if he's finished it out. Bitcoin obsoletes all other money would be a uh, pretty epic way to finish out the series. Um, but I know Parker Lewis is going to continue to have uh, amazing writing, so I'm keeping a close eye uh, one way or the other. Uh, don't forget to check out the blog. Um, uh, sign up for the blog. You know, get, their, get their updates um, if you don't want to miss it. Again, I've said numerous times, they have one of the best blogs, if not the best, in the whole space. So highly recommended there. You know, the only other thing I actually wanted to say about this, I had never heard this John Adams quote that he puts at the end here. But that's such a beautiful way to argue. Like, like, I've always, over the years, I've slowly adopted the position, but never really could quite word why it was so important to me. Um, sometimes, sometimes I don't find just the right words. Um, but the idea that it is more important to make sure we don't put an innocent man in prison or um, condemn an innocent man for something that they did not do than it is that we have every single criminal or every, everybody who's ever done anything violent behind bars that we must err on the side of innocence. 
and I had never quite heard heard it put this way, but uh, I'll just go ahead and read this again before we close this episode out. It is more important that innocence be protected than it is that guilt be punished. For guilt and crimes are so frequent in this world that they cannot all be punished. But if innocence itself is brought to the bar and condemned perhaps to die, then the citizen will say, whether I do good or whether I do evil is immaterial, for innocence itself is no protection. And if such an idea as that were to take hold in the mind of the citizen, that would be the end of security whatsoever. Beautiful argument. It truly would be the end of society if doing the right thing, being innocent of, of, of a crime, is no protection whatsoever for your life, liberty, and property to not be utterly destroyed by the state. And unfortunately, I think we are losing that. I think we have lost that perspective and we fundamentally do not understand. And that is a lot why a lot of people are so unbelievably resentful of our political institutions are, and are in fact losing the framing of it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm going to go to jail anyway. I'm going to have my life destroyed anyway. I'm going to have my property taken anyway. Why in the hell would I be good instead of evil if I'm being punished regardless of what I do? And, and it truly is absurd. Um, I never heard it quite framed that way. But it's so silly to think that we could punish everybody who commits a crime. That everybody who does everything wrong, anything wrong, will always be properly punished. And that we could somehow implement something so sweeping and so thorough as that without false positives. I think anybody who has been wrapped up in litigation that has been stuck in the court system at all for all, all manner of things can see very quickly and easily how destructive it is to innocent people. That people who are entirely in the right can have their lives utterly destroyed and win the case. They can get stuck spending millions of dollars in court, their lives ruined, their savings ruined, their families torn apart, marriages destroyed over someone simply not wanting them to, someone who knows that they are wrong, that the other person is innocent but that they can just obliterate their life anyway just by forcing them into the court system and forcing them into a multi-year lawsuit. That people are regularly, regularly taking plea deals and uh, admitting to guilt for shorter prison sentences because it's less expensive than proving their innocence. One of the very many problems that systemically we have to solve and i think bitcoin will go a long way to solving that i mean i you know it's about this this the nature of this show but i think so many of these problems are systemic that we plant a poisoned seed and expect a beautiful flourishing tree and when the tree is poisoned we think oh well let's paint the leaves solid green even though you know they've got all these nasty spots on them let's uh 
you know, let's glue a bunch of fresh bark on the outside of this thing. Like, like we just try so hard to fix the poisoned tree to make it look like everything's great. But what we've done is we've planted a terrible seed. And of course, of course, we are going to have horrible consequences. Um, and it is not a problem of, oh, we need to change this litigation law or, oh, we need to change this one regulation that, you know, causes all the problem. No, the fundamental, the, the foundations of our society, of how we are thinking about things, of our money, all of the key parts of this entire system are fundamentally broken. And therefore, all of its ex externalities will be broken as well. So I desperately hope to see, um, as Bitcoin defunds these inherently broken systems, that we replace them with things that work. We, we, see, we see things from the right perspective. Um, and, you know, maybe that is a consequence. Maybe that is a, um, you know, part of the recipe. Maybe that's an ingredient. I don't know. But I think Bitcoin rights so many wrongs that we don't know exactly how far-reaching the effects will be. Um, and fingers crossed that that, among many, many other things, uh, you know, hashtag Bitcoin fixes this. So uh, with that, uh, I've gone on forever here. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Don't forget to check out, follow Parker Lewis, Unchained Capital, all that great stuff. I have the link to the original plus the blog so you can check out all of the other works uh, that they have produced out uh, over there. Uh, just some amazing stuff. And of course, check out thecryptoeconomy.com for hundreds of other. We're on seat 363 for reads now, coming up on 400. There's so much other stuff to explore if you haven't. Go check it out. If there's some sort of Bitcoin piece that you're curious if it's an audio, I may very well have it. So uh, it's thecryptoeconomy.com. And of course, subscribe to the podcast so that you can get more of the best in Bitcoin made audible by Guy Swan, the guy who's read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. All right, guys, I'll catch you all tomorrow with another episode. And until then, take it easy, guys.